We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. There was a truly tragic situation that took place over in an English professional league, in an England professional league uh, hockey game on the weekend. A guy named Adam Johnson who played a dozen or so games in the NHL. He was playing pro hockey in England was skating across the blue line and another player's foot came up and his throat was slit and not long after he died. It's just, it's a horrendous thing. I would strongly encourage anybody not to go look up the videos online. I say that only because I know that immediately people go, oh, let me go see. No, no, you do. You don't want to see this. It's not, it's not something that you want to have in your brain. Let's just put it that way. But the interesting part about this, and, and I say interesting That's not the right word, I understand. But back in January, January 5th, on the anniversary, on the 48th anniversary of his own incident, a guy named Kim Crouch talked to me. And we've talked before, but January 5th, 1975, Kim Crouch was playing goalie for the Markham Waxers in junior hockey and had his own throat slit by a skate and very nearly died. His trainer saved him. And back in January of this year, when I was talking to Kim Crouch, he said, you know, nobody's listening, but something bad is going to happen. Hmm. Uh, this is one of those times that you hope that the person you were talking to was not right, but he was, uh, Kim Crouch joins me now. Kim, how are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you very much. This is, uh, I mean, you called it and not, this is not, as I say, something you're going to be boasting about, but you've been ringing alarm bells and waving red flags for years now. And here we are. That's correct. It's something that, uh, as I watch a hockey game, I have a different perspective because of the injury that I had. So uh, I've watched it. I've seen near misses. So uh, it felt that it was going to happen again. And uh, certainly, as you said, I don't boast or take any credit for it. I, I don't enjoy hearing about it, but it's reality. The thing about this, and when when we were talking back in January about this, I hadn't even realized This happens way more than people think. I mean, we watch the NHL and it doesn't happen all that often. I mean, there was Richard Zednick and there was the horrendous Clint Malarchuk incident. But if you look at college hockey or junior hockey or pro hockey overseas or wherever, this happens with a reasonable degree of regularity. That's correct. And the one issue that I've had is even when neck protection was made mandatory in some of those leagues, the players would alter the neck guard. They wouldn't wear it properly. But then subsequent to that, it wasn't being enforced uh, to wear them properly. So uh, even with neck protection, it's got to be worn properly to be effective. So why, and by the way, when I say this happens way more than we know, I'm not talking about people dying. I'm just, I'm talking about people getting cut. If people know that this is happening, we have a case, you know, again, after the Clint Malarchuk thing, and again, I I absolutely encourage people not to go look that up online. That will make your stomach turn for sure. Mm -hmm. But after that happened, I was sure that everybody pros down would say, well, I got to do something now. And it didn't. Why not? What's the, what's the difficulty making the point? No, No, I mean, I'm not being funny, but no hockey player would go on the ice without his jock. Why would you suddenly think that it's good to go on the ice without a neck guard? I don't like to use the word cool, but players just don't feel comfortable or they just, it's not, it's not what everybody else is doing. So they're a lot, it's a lot more difficult to get them on board with something like this. 
obviously, uh, neck protection was made mandatory for minor hockey back in 1993, and and kids at that at that time, it was mandatory, and they've worn it ever since. So it's it's um, just part of their equipment. But to to introduce something new to a pro or uh, a 20 year old, it's a difficult task. It really is. And 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 I play junior, and and I know. <laughs> Uh, you know, you're you're hesitant to wear something. You you're uh, fight back because it's uh, something you don't want to do. And uh, I, I these, these incidents happen, like mine and and what sadly happened to Adam. And I just hope the conversation doesn't go away. Like it. it well, it shouldn't. I, it shouldn't. Now, it did should. did you say 1993 for minor hockey? Yeah, the CH. Okay. So. Protection. So Kim, if I get your point that it's really difficult to bring it into pro players all of a sudden, but there is not a single guy playing pro hockey anywhere in the world right now who was not playing minor hockey in 1993 or later. There's nobody who ever played a minute of hockey who's playing professional now who has not played his entire or her entire minor hockey life with a neck guard. So why then... You're not introducing it. Why are they taking it off when they get to the pros? That's a question that, that I can't answer. I really can't. I, I just, uh, it'd be uh, something that they have to answer because uh, uh, it makes perfect sense just to continue to wear it. Uh, but that, that I don't know. Mm. You know, the one thing I've always wondered about this is clearly for whatever reason that they don't want to wear it, whether it's comfort or whatever else, uh, the one thing I've thought is, well, if you can't get them to wear it because of their, they'll say, well, it won't happen to me. If you told anyone playing pro hockey that their contract was not covered, if they got their skate cut, uh, their next cut by a skate, that they were out of money for whatever was left on their contract. You know what? That may be the only thing, but I bet you suddenly a lot of their agents would be saying, get that neck guard on because you could be out on millions and millions and millions of dollars. Oh, for sure. And that's, that's, um, I don't want to say radical, but I mean, to, to them, it may become radical. And it's uh, something that the players, no doubt this accident will, will draw their attention. And I'm sure some will be impacted more than others. I know that personally, it certainly was a time for mixed emotions and, and, and reflections after I saw that Adam actually died on the ice with, with, quick medical care and it just indicates how quickly you can, this can become a fatality. Mm. Um, how, how close was it not, for you, Kim? How close did it come for you when you got cut? Well, I, I thought we used a phrase less than a minute ago. And if, it, and if it wasn't for Joe Piccinini, our, our trainer at the time, who was only 20 years, 23 years old, I, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. And I was told that by medical, um, doctor who performed the surgery on me because I phoned Joe Piccini every January 5th at the date of the accident just to, you know, have a chat. And the doctor told me, you keep calling Joe because he was the one who um, uh, got you to the hospital. So that's the, that's the reality of this injury is that um, it, you bleed out. You, you, and it's, and you can, and it become, it can become a fatality that quickly. It's uh, it's a horrible story. I really hope that, uh, you know, the, you always say you hope something good comes out of this. I don't know what good comes out of this, but maybe 
parents at least really cracking down on their kids to wear these things properly because it, it's, it can happen and it's an accident, but it can happen. And you're listening to someone who it was an accident, but it happened and, um, you saw it on the weekend and geez, I, I just, it's, it's, it's horrendous and I can't imagine anyone else having to go through this, but, uh, hopefully maybe that's the thing that comes out of this. Uh, Kim Crouch, former hockey player, really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Kim. Okay. My pleasure, Scott. Just about uh, half an hour ago, 40 minutes ago, maybe I got a press release from the city of Hamilton, influenza and COVID-19 vaccines available to all Hamiltonians. And it is a long press release laying out that everybody who is six months old and older is now eligible to go and get one or both. I, I know my next guest would be, I'm sure <laughs> saying make it both. He is Dr. Kieran Moore, chief medical officer of health for the province of Ontario joins us now. Doctor, thanks for the time today. Oh, afternoon. Thanks so much. I appreciate you doing this. This, as I say, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that uh, if I were to ask you, you would say both, not just one or the other. I just got mine an hour ago and I got one in each arm. So uh, yeah, I would endorse both. There's a question that, uh, that I've long had. And um, a couple of years ago when we were in the midst of COVID and everybody was getting their COVID shots and doing everything, we had essentially in this country, zero cases of the flu. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, it was like, you know, almost none. There were almost no cases. No one that I've ever heard though, we heard everybody saying you must go and get COVID shots and that tried to get rid of COVID. Has there ever been anyone suggesting that flu shots should be mandatory because we showed that it was getting, you could get rid of it. I, if, if you got, if everyone stayed apart or got the shots or whatever else. Yeah, we, we got rid of it uh, over the last three years, mainly because um, we, uh, we stayed home, we isolated, we wore masks, we had good hand hygiene. So to me, it's a good lesson learned that even without a vaccine, we can defeat influenza. It's much less infectious than RSV and COVID. Uh, and so those basic measures of hand hygiene, masking, isolation, will absolutely help. Yeah. And I wasn't necessarily pushing for a mandatory flu vaccine, just to be clear. Oops. I think we lost them, but we'll, uh, we'll get Dr. Moore back. We just, the phone just dropped there. We'll get him back. Uh, wasn't pushing necessarily for a mandatory vaccine, but it's an interesting, I, I I'm surprised, honestly, that many people, more people have not come forward with that idea. And then we would have the discussion about whether that's a good idea or not. However, that is, uh, th there was a, you may remember this and you may May or may not, but there were literally almost zero cases of the flu, uh, in the midst of COVID. All right. So, uh, we have the doctor back. Um, so we're, we're talking about this when you are now telling people to go and get this though, I am guessing that there might, that you and other doctors may be running into some reluctance that, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to get people convinced if you are not someone who is enthusiastic about getting these, I am guessing it's difficult to convince people at this point. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, and, um, you know, our main target audience, we didn't buy 16 million doses for all Ontarians. We really bought uh, roughly 6 million of influenza and COVID for the highest risk individuals, hoping uh, that the very young and the very old would come forward to get immunized. So um, we really need anyone over 60 years of age with an underlying uh, or those with an underlying medical illness to come forward uh, to get protected. It's those individuals that are really are uh, you know, a high priority for us uh, to uh, get immunized and get protected because those individuals are the 
the ones that have the highest risk of getting into hospital if they come down with mm. either one of those illnesses. So you're absolutely right. We we do have a particular emphasis on those populations that are most at risk and certainly hope that they will come forward. Long-term care homes, obviously, in COVID were, were uniquely hard hit. Uh, how do we get those to be at the top of the list? Because that would be, I mean, you said very old and very young, but I, I mean, that would seem to be one of the main places you would go first to try and get them done. Thank you so much. You're absolutely right. And so the last several weeks, Hamilton Public Health, all of our health system partners have been working on immunizing uh, in those settings first. They're always our priority in the fall. So October um, was our month to get immunizations there. And I'm happy to say we've gotten 325,000 doses uh, into those high-risk settings, our hospitals, our healthcare workers, to best protect them. Uh, and now, uh, as of October 30th, we're now making it available to the general public, again, hoping that those most at risk for a severe outcome will come forward, although it is optional for everybody. What, we learned, we all learned a lot. I mean, you knew it, but the rest of us all learned an awful lot during COVID about respiratory things and viruses and everything else. One of the things that a lot of people learned was that the flu, the strain of flu every year is not the same. So are we in flu season right now? Are we seeing that these vaccines are having an impact or if we're not, how do we know that the flu vaccine we're giving is the right one now? Uh, so we watch the Southern Hemisphere down in Australia, New Zealand, Chile, and we watch what's going on and what their viruses are. Uh, and then we predict what should be in our vaccine for our winter and, uh, and fall. Uh, and, and so you're absolutely right. There's four uh, protective uh, components to the, no the normal influenza vaccine two different A strains and two different B strains. And this year, we do anticipate um, um, an A and a B mixed year. And I'm happy to say, uh, given what's happened uh, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, we're anticipating a good match between what we've uh, provided through vaccine and what we anticipate circulating. So we think you'll have at least a 50% decreased risk and you're being hospitalized if you get um, vaccinated with the influenza vaccine that we have. So you're right, four major components in it. Uh, and we do think it'll be protective this year. One of the, uh, so let, let's go back to COVID for just one second here, because there are many people, probably many listening, uh, I'm, I'm guessing almost everyone listening got COVID at one time or another, but for some people it was horrible, for other people it was hardly anything at all. If you were one of those people who hardly had any symptoms from it, if it really, what well, you couldn't figure out what all the fuss was about, is that a likelihood that if you were to get it again, that would be the same thing? In other words, once that, does that establish a trend? Are we seeing that that is a consistent with people? That's a very good question. It, it is most likely that if you had a minor illness the first time uh, and that you don't have any significant change in your health, so no other uh, medical illnesses, that most likely, um, given the virus hasn't become more severe, um, that it'll stay as a milder illness. Uh, but if, if you had a rough time the first time, your, your immunity does fade and we need you to stay protected through immunization. So hence the reason, no matter if you've had the virus six months ago and or the vaccine, we're advising that you stay up to date with this new updated XBB. We do anticipate that it'll provide robust immunity uh, against the Omicron strains that are circulating. And yes, we know the virus changes, but we think that this most updated uh, vaccine uh, will provide the best protection for what for us all is going to be a long and difficult winter. We want the safest holiday season 
uh, and winter season for everybody. And staying up to date is your best bet. Doctor, we only have a few seconds left here, but what about, what do we believe now about the idea of natural immunity? Is there any belief that that if you, once you've had it, you are somewhat or completely or not at all immunized uh, towards COVID again? Sadly, with coronaviruses in general, and there's at least six that affect humans, our immunity does fade with time with them. And hence, some individuals in Hamilton may have had multiple uh, COVID infections over the years because immunity does fade with time. So if you're uh, vulnerable to this virus, immune suppressed, uh, underlying medical illness, your best protection is to get updated on a regular basis and, and get this fall vaccine in particular of the new updated XBB. Dr. Kieran Moore, Chief Medical Officer of Health for Ontario. Appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing Thanks this. Thanks so much, Tom. Here's the thing. So right before we came on during the commercial break there, I typed in to Google, because I'd done this before, but I wanted to pull it up to have it handy. Coffee, good for you. And I typed in coffee, bad for you. <laughs> and what is amazing is that Depending on what you type in, there are so many studies that say, oh, coffee's going to do this or do that. And then other ones say, oh, coffee's going to do this and do that. What is it going to do? Well, there is new evidence, it seems, that would suggest that coffee is good for your liver. Let me bring in Laura Delandria. She is the manager of marketing and, marketing and communications with the Canadian Liver Foundation. Laura, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I don't think anything has been studied as much as red wine, chocolate, and coffee about whether it's good and bad for us. <laughs> and it becomes impossible to follow it because you get so many of these conflicting stories. So we're going to talk about yours today because yours suggest, your study is suggesting that it actually could be really good for your liver. Why? Yeah, absolutely. So this research is coming out from the U.S. and the U.K. And it's confirming what we've seen in previous research, actually. Um, and it's that people who drink two to four cups of coffee per day can reduce their risk of preventable liver diseases like fatty liver disease, liver cancer, fibrosis, and cirrhosis, which is scarring of the liver. Um, so the connection there is kind of that these components of coffee are suspected to slow down or suppress the progression of liver disease. Um, and to kind of understand that our liver processes everything we drink, eat, breathe, or even just rub on our skin. So by incorporating black coffee, um, it has these compounds and antioxidants that are actually cancer-fighting, they're anti-inflammatory, they're also anti-diabetic, we're actually helping to reduce liver damage. Okay, you just said a whole bunch of things that I want to touch on all in that one sentence. Yeah. Um, you mentioned black coffee, is, is there something special about black coffee as opposed to putting in cream or sugar or something else? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, so the basis is that these studies are based off of black coffee. Um, so just keeping in mind, you know, there's a lot of people who add milk, et cetera, to their coffee, just being mindful of moderation. Um, and the data shows that one cup could lower your risk of chronic liver disease by 15%. Um, and for those who increase that to three to four cups a day, that risk reduction jumps up to 71%. So again, black coffee is what these studies are based off of. But again, it could also be decaf. It can be caffeinated. Um, and also no matter how you prepare it. So it can be filter, Ooh. instant, French press, espresso, even pour over. Okay. And you just got to my next one that you said in that last sentence about the caffeine. So this is not mm -hmm. just the caffeine. This is, this is something in the coffee itself. It's not the caffeine that's doing this. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So it's these compounds and antioxidants that make up coffee um, that are giving the benefits for liver health. Is there any, now, okay, so coffee can be not just boiled and made, but the beans can be like, there's millions of different kinds of beans. Do we know, can we break it down further? Do we know if certain beans are better for, or is more potent beans like espresso beans, would they be even better for us? Or do we know this kind of stuff? Um, I mean, we did not do the study itself. I'm not exactly sure of those details. As far as we know, it's just coffee the way it comes. I don't, as far as we know. Um, but even like cooking and baking with it and incorporating it in that really? way is a great way to get it into your diet. Um, we have lots of coffee inspired recipes on our website as well at liver.ca. So yeah, there's, I think any, we don't know exactly, but yeah. Okay. And so when you said that one cup, cup might help and three or four might be better for someone like me who eclipses that considerably most days, I, I must be the most healthy person in the world then if you have, <laughs> if you have, there must be. Hey, you're there, helping your liver health. That's for sure. That's what I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what the flip side of that is, what the downsides could be. Cause I mean, with everything, there's a, there's a pro and a con, right? There's always going to be something good and there's always going to be something you give up with that. But if you do it right, I guess, if you're right. reasonable about it, it's probably fine. It's probably good. Yeah. We're all about moderation here at the Canadian Liver Foundation. So. How, how, um, commonplace is, is the kind, I was going to say is liver disease, but let me specify more. How common is the type of liver disease that this might actually help? Cause there are going to be some liver diseases that are way beyond what a cup of coffee or three a day is going to help. But how common could, could this be that somebody could really be benefiting from this? Absolutely. So, yeah. So speaking to what you said about um, specific liver diseases, there are over a hundred liver diseases. Um, so the ones that we're seeing that it, it's benefiting specifically um, are fatty liver disease, liver cancer, fibrosis, and cirrhosis. And so just a little stat for you, one in four Canadians are actually affected by liver disease. And that's up from one in 10 only a decade ago. And like, so even liver cancer, which was once considered rare as one of the fastest growing and deadly forms of cancer in Canada. Yeah. So we're just really passionate about um, giving Canadians these small daily habits that can improve their liver health to help um, reduce the risk of these liver diseases. And is that number going up, especially the, and I don't know if I'm interpreting this right, the fatty liver disease, I'm, I'm interpreting that to mean people who, you know, we have more fat in our diet. We tend to be heavier these days, all of us, than people were a few years ago. Is that the kind of thing, is that why so many people are having this now, just because so many people are heavier and larger? eating more fat? It's certainly um, a big part of it is lifestyle choices. So the two main ones that are affected by um, liver disease are healthy eating and physical activity. So to speak to that, um, those are two pieces why the, these cases are going up for sure. Um, so we really want to focus on a healthy diet that's rich in the majority being rich in vegetables, fruit, lean proteins, whole grains, and healthy fats. Um, as well as just like incorporating physical activity into our day-to-day -day mm. lives. Well, and that can just be like 20 minutes of going for a light walk. Well, Laura, definitely the lack of those things are, are contributing. Laura, forget that. If you're drinking four or five cups of coffee, you got to, you can do more than 20 minutes of exercise. You can, <laughs> you can do hours of exercise. Just keep pounding that coffee back and it's a double bonus. <laughs> there you go. Laura Delandria, manager of marketing and communication with the Canadian Liver Foundation. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Just as we were coming in, Ben, who's on the other side of the glass doing all the work, whispered in my ear, he goes, I, I intentionally didn't play the friends theme here, even though that's the obvious choice, because 
Matthew Perry did a lot of things other than Friends. And you know what? That's a fair comment. I was looking through his IMDb, Internet Movie Database listing. And if you want to have a game, almost like a scavenger hunt for Matthew Perry. Back as a kid, he was in Charles in Charge. Now he wasn't a regular, but he showed up in Charles in Charge, Silver Spoons, The Tracy Ullman Show, Highway to Heaven, Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, Beverly Hills 90210. Um, let's see if there's, and then all of a sudden Friends shows up, which is, you know, did okay with that one. Let me bring in Eric Alper though. Eric, we usually talk to Eric about music, but uh, he is a man who knows his way around the world of pop culture. Joining us now, Eric, how are you today? I'm good. Hey, we can't forget about The West Wing, my all-time favorite the show. The West Wing. I mean, now that came... Ali yep. McBeal too. I mean, he, yes. he was very, very busy up until Friends... And then uh, French just kind of sent him off into the stratosphere. Yes, from there. the Simpsons as well. You're right. And and I was thinking, oh, those were after Friends. No, no, that was uh, well. Some of those were. Some of those came after yeah. Friends. But um, yeah. this is, you know, it, the thing about Matthew Perry is that obviously we've seen him recently, and he's, you know, he's he's had a rough last number of years, and he's looked. His age, quite honestly, I mean, most of the people who are in Friends don't look their age. They've uh, you know, stayed pretty, uh, pretty youthful looking. Matthew Perry looked his age. And so, you know, we've known that he's been going through some tough times. If you read his book, you know that he's been definitely going through some tough times. And yet somehow it's still, even though he didn't look great, honestly, it's still shocking when you get this news on Saturday or Sunday morning. Yeah. Especially because you always hope that good people find a way. They find that light at the end of the tunnel, even though that, as he said um, in his book, um, that he spent almost half of his life in treatment and rehab facilities. Um, and in fact, really early on in the friends, um, in that kind of career that he had, he was already drinking on the set. And in fact, he brings up one point where Jennifer Aniston came to his trailer and said, we can all smell the alcohol on you. And that really set him to being two inches tall because he kind of thought that maybe he could get away with it. Like most people with a drug and alcohol problem, they think that they can hide it from the people that they love the easiest. And it turned out to be usually the first people that find out and it hit him like a sledgehammer. Um, and from then on in, he was basically in and out of rehab. He had a jet ski accident in 1997 that, um, that got him, uh, an addiction to painkillers. And then a year and a half later, he was taking up to 55 pills a day. And he checked into a rehab facility weighing just under 130 pounds. So he really did hit rock bottom, not in terms of financially and not in terms of success and celebrities, but just in terms of morale and the oh. way that he was feeling health-wise. Um, and uh, from then on in, it kind of seemed like he was slowly getting his life back. And then, you know, we heard the news mm. over the weekend. It just sat all around. And he has, I mean, I read his book in the summertime actually. And, and in his book, he'll talk about, you know, you just watch friends and you can tell when I'm doing well and when I'm not just look at my weight in friends. And now, you know, having seen that, yeah, you watch old episodes of friends and he looks like him, like a healthy guy. And then all of a sudden he's super skinny and you, I don't know that we like so many other things. It's stunning how many times we don't put the pieces together until after when we learn. I mean, I think of baseball with the steroid thing. None of us seem to put the pieces together until after and go, oh, that's why that happened. Well, yeah. Th I mean, this is why Matthew Perry, he, by his own admission was going up and down in weight was, you know, times that he was 
really struggling here. But the thing about him, I, is there, I was trying to think who the person was and maybe it's impossible. Maybe it's a stupid question, but I was trying to think who was the person on that show who, if you took them out of there would have changed the show the most. And I think it's Any him, one of them. but I think it's him because he was the guy yeah. who generally had the punchline more often than any of the rest of them. I, I mean, all of them, you're right. Any one of them you take out of the show friends and it's way different, but I think he, you take him out. That may have been the biggest difference to that show. You, you know, what's interesting that you just said that. Cause I, I just jumped in. I was like, everybody can, you know, cause like you and I have talked in music and it's like, that's why Ringo Starr is the greatest drummer of all time. Cause he was perfect for the Beatles. Matthew was kind of the guy that we all wished we were coming up with those really snappy lines coming up with, you know, could it be any more yep. brighter in here? Just those. Change the way we talk. Him. Yeah. Change the way we talk. Change the way we talk. And that's from Matthew. The way the, the word be, um, comes from him. It didn't come from the writers, but I think, you know, when you want fame that badly and Matthew wanted it very, very badly, he left an unhappy second family. Once his mother divorced and got remarried again, he practiced tennis for 10 hours a day in Canada and then in Los Angeles. And he said in his book that he prayed and prayed and prayed for fame and success. And he wanted it more than any other person on the planet. And then three weeks later, he got the call about friends. Everybody so, knows. And, and with his mother, I just want to say, everybody knows, yeah. I think his mother was the press secretary for Pierre Trudeau, went to school. He went to school with Justin Trudeau and yeah. his stepfather is, um, uh, help me out from a uh, dateline or, uh, um, like, uh, uh, oh, how am I drawing a blank on his name? The white hair guy, Keith Morrison. Keith yeah, Morrison. Yeah. Keith Morrison. Yeah. Who, yeah. And then his mother was on global news yeah. on, on the, on the national. So, so he, he wanted it, but then, you know, like you and I have talked in the past about artists, um, what happens when you get that dream fulfilled and it doesn't make you happy? You know, that's the scary part of it. That is where things start to fall down when you're dating somebody like Julia Roberts and you have so self low self-esteem about yourself that you break up with her so that she didn't have to break up with you somewhere down the road. And Julia was like, I was never going to do that. Um, so, but that's what it makes you feel is all of those adolescent feelings of being the best and being lonely and having no friends to having friends. Um, it messes with your mind and there's not a lot of places and things that you can go to except for drugs and alcohol that kind of help fill that void mm. for a little bit until you realize that you're addicted to all those drugs and alcohol that you were taking in the first place. It is, uh, it is very unfortunate and we got to run, but it's, you know, the a funny part about this, and it is a funny thing when you talk about how he changed the way people talked for a generation, he really did. It's, it's, we're not on, we're not overstating this, like people's dialect and their delivery of the language changed because of friends and because of him, the same way a generation before another Canadian, Mike Myers with, you know, not, and all that's like, yeah. it's, it's been a series mm -hmm. of Canadians that have really affected how we have spoken in, you know, and it comes from comedy and it comes, as I say, from this country. It's a, it's a, it's a very sad story and it's, uh, it, you know, money, I guess, doesn't buy everything. They had tons of money, but it is, um. And I don't know if there, if that's a lesson, I don't know, everyone knows that already. It's just, it's a very sad story because it was for a whole generation. This was the show. It really was. It was. Seinfeld was for 
bump some, friends was for another. And, uh, you know, we always, uh, this is, this is one of the people but, that was but, of our generation now gone. But you didn't want to be friends with anybody from Seinfeld. You wanted to be friends with the cast uh, of Friends. I would have been friends with Kramer. I don't know for how long, but <laughs> would have given it a shot anyway. Uh, that is Eric Alper. Always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This next segment, I'm not going to butter it up or anything like that. It's really upsetting. And I mean, it is terribly upsetting. And let's be just frank about what we're talking about. I don't know if you saw the video of this or heard the stories about this. It is well-documented. Every major media place has got this. It's not fake news. It sounded, I mean, when I first heard this, I thought this has to be fake. This has to be fake. There's no way, but it is not. On the weekend, there was a plane that was landing at an airport in Russia And it was believed by some apparently to be coming from Tel Aviv. And so a mob of people stormed through the gates onto the tarmac of the airport, searching for this plane, chanting things, apparently searching for Jews to assault, who knows what was going to happen. But we have now reached the point, the... The situation that happened in Israel on October 7th was one thing, horrendous, Hor- no words, horrendous. But now we've got situations happening other parts of the world. Just if you are Jewish, you are being sought for whatever. It, it's, it's outrageous. It's infuriating. I don't know what the proper word is or words to go with this. I just know that when I see these stories, I am completely outraged and feel kind of like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. Gustavo Rimberg is the chief executive officer of the Hamilton Jewish Federation. He joins us now. Gustavo, thank you for the time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. I, I don't know about you. As I said off the top, when I first saw this, I thought it had to be something that was made up or fake news because it sounds impossible that this is something that could have really happened anywhere. What, what, when did you find out about this? What was your thought when you saw it? Same, you know, honestly, same reaction. I think one of my, my kids was sharing that information with me and I said, you know what, check twice because this cannot be true. Cannot be true. You know, uh, but it is true, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and, you know, you, you say something in the introduction that Jewish people, how, how we feel today, you know? After October seven and after all the, the the incidents that we are facing, and it's it's happening in Hamilton too. It's happening in Toronto. It's happening in Montreal. It's happening very close to all of us. How uh, unsafe we are, mm. uh, and how afraid we are. And uh, and I unfortunately, this is the battle that maybe they are winning, but we make sure that they are not going to win. But What's happening in Russia, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's extremely problematic in different, very, very different uh, ways. You know, like, uh, number one, you know, like, how, how you identify that someone is Jewish? You know, what, what kind of uh, stereotypes you have in your mind, you know, that you are going to look for someone who is Jewish to kill because it's coming from Israel? That's concerning, that's disturbing. Mm. 
but I, I think that it's part of a bigger problem. You know, it's like you go to the, the, the protest here. I didn't hear any protest saying like safe or liberate, liberate Palestinians from Hamas. And that's the problem that we are facing. It's Hamas. It's not the Palestinian people. So the rhetoric that they are using, uh, the fact that you go to a protest in Toronto and you you see the you, you listen the hate speech, kill the Jewish, put them in the water, remove them. They don't have to exist anymore. That's that's part of the that, that that's part of what is taking us to a situation like Russia. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Gustavo, when I, I mean, there's been a number of things that have been online that is on social media. And again, it, it's always very wise to check these things twice or three times or four times to make sure they're real, because sometimes you can't yeah. tell. But I mean, in, um, in Vancouver on the weekend, there was a, a person giving a speech on the steps of, I don't even know what building it was, talking about the October 7 assault as an amazing, brilliant offensive. And this mm-hmm. is something in Canada that this is said. And what I don't understand, if we don't want to happen here, what happened in Russia on the weekend, where this sort of leads to that, what I don't understand is we have very clearly laid out hate laws in this country. I am failing to understand why none of these laws seem to be applied regardless of what is said in this country. This is, this is to me exactly what these laws are on the book for, to deal with things like this that is endorsing or counseling or encouraging terrorism and nothing seems to be happening. Well, I think that you should be part of our government. Yeah. No, thank you. But, but it's, but I, I, again, I don't like, we're quick with other things to, to throw hate laws into the mix. For sure. Absolutely. For sure. I always said, you know, like if this has happened to another minority of another community, I'm telling you that the response, the, the, the government action will be totally different. There is something that happened after during October 7 and after October 7, is that this, this situation gave a lot of people the opportunity to express their anti-Semitism, okay? This is not in the way that people are protesting, in the way that these people was talking about in, in, in Vancouver. Or you can see what happened in Chicago yesterday, what is happening now in New York, what is happening in everywhere. We saw it here, Gustavo. We saw it at McMaster. They were on the week, uh, last week tearing down the posters of the, the kidnapped posters. Jewish yeah. people. And, and, yeah. uh, and, and what's happening? I mean, it just, it's, yeah. it's, it seems to me, and the reason I brought you on and the reason we're talking about this Russian thing, that's not happening here yet, but that's what I, I mean, and people might say, come on, you're being crazy to think that that is what's going to happen over here. Why not? Why not? If nothing can is happen, ever done. Happen, yeah. If nothing is ever done to anytime, stop it, why not? Can happen anytime, everywhere. This is unfortunately, and listen, there's a lot of things that happen that they are not part of the media or, 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 or the public knowledge, but there are things happening in public schools. There are things happening in recreation centers when kids wearing a kippa, they are attacked and they are bullied. And they are telling that, you know, that because you are a Jewish, they will come here to kill you too. So this is things that happening here right now as we talk. So things can happen. We've got to run, uh, Gustavo, but we, we got to run. But a few minutes ago, you used the word scared. Are you scared? Yes, absolutely I am. 
Mm. It's a very, it's a very interesting situation. I'm scared, but I'm very proud of being who I am, of being Jewish, and I will do whatever I have to do in order to defend my community and speak on behalf of my community. I'm scared, but I'm not afraid. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. Gustavo Rimberg, the Chief Executive Officer of the Hamilton Jewish Federation. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Would you be happier not working? And I don't mean at your current job. That's, it's not about your current job. Do you believe that, let's say you just could get by and never have to work a day in your life. Would you be happier in that scenario than holding a job? Most Canadians say that they would be, that that is the, I guess that's the dream. But is that really something that we would find great satisfaction? And let me bring in Dr. Nita Chinzer. She's Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Management at the University of Guelph. Doctor, thank you for this. Uh, interesting question. I mean, you're having an existential crisis like many of us today. <laughs> and well, yeah, and it really is because I completely understand the draw the appeal of saying, oh, you know what? I never have to work again for a day in my life. But I believe, I truly believe, and maybe you agree or disagree. I believe the vast majority of people, there would come a certain point. I don't know if it's four weeks or a, two months or a year. There would come a point where they go, I need to do something to make an impact or to be productive in some way. Right. So humans are programmed to be a social creatures, but be, you know, very creative and innovative. And so when we're talking about people saying, oh, it would be great for me not to work another day, they might do other things that develop themselves. So we know Canada is largely an entrepreneurship-based society, and they might start new businesses and think about ways that they could better society. I mean, not working, to meet, perhaps in this tense sense means not working for you know, someone else, mm. but working for myself. And that's where we see it more. So we see this more with people who have perhaps an entrepreneurial spirit, and they're the ones who are likely to say, it'd be great if I never had to report into work. But that doesn't mean they're not being productive and active members of society. Well, even if you were to say, like with your example, and it's a good one, let's say that mm -hmm. you decided, okay, I don't want to have to work a day in my life. I want to paint. I want to go up to my room yeah. and set up a paint studio. I bet you that 90% of people, if that's what they started doing all the time, at some point would go to put some of their work for sale, which would mean essentially they are working. Yes. So, uh, well, maybe they are working. In their sense, it may be something that's more true to who they are. So recently we've had some research done to show that people who feel what they're contributing to the work or the world around them is part of their calling, they're more likely to actually be more actively engaged in that work and more successful in that work. So, for example, research has been done on veterinarians. Some people are, want to be veterinarians because they like the job. They think that it's um, very good work. It's got good reputation. It's got good pay. Others want to be veterinarians because they feel that it's their calling in life, that they will get purpose and meaningful contributions if they can help other animals and animal, animal owners. And the people who want to be veterinarians for the reason of being a it being their calling are more likely to get pleasure in that job and stay in that job and succeed in that job than people who get into their jobs for the wrong reasons. So it comes down to, you know, can you find that thing that makes you happy and that is that calling? Now, when we talk about artists, 
it would be great for people to be able to quit and be artists. But there's an unfortunate reality that comes in in terms of how do we afford things. Yes. And that's where people get stuck. What is this So we say? know that there's a hustle culture going on right now, too, where some people have these side jobs. And their side jobs are their passion jobs. But ideally, if I could make my passion job into my full-time job, I think I'm winning at life. What does this say, though, about past generations, then, of people who maybe worked in a factory and it might have been monotonous, but they took satisfaction in the fact that they went and put in an honest day's work every day and brought home a paycheck and put food on the table. Was that thinking, is that thinking antiquated then? It really is. So recent research was done. It's actually done this year. 35,000 people were interviewed uh, globally and asked, you know, what is it that makes you happy? And we found massive generational differences in the place of work. So younger generations want flexibility, but steady employment and steady income. Whereas older generations, you know, the traditionalists and the baby boomers were willing to sacrifice their work-life balance, were willing to sacrifice their sense of happiness or productivity for that form of life, lifelong employment. They saw it as a form of loyalty to their mm. employers, yep. which was a point of pride for them. And the new generation is saying, you know what, I have to be loyal to me too. I want to do something that benefits the employer, but it also has to be meaningful and beneficial to me. And so that research actually was quite, it's quite recent, pretty large, a global study of 35,000 yes, employees, yes. but generational differences definitely exist. And I saw, and you may have seen this too. I don't know where it came from. It was everywhere on social media last week or the week before. It was a video of a girl, a younger woman driving in her car, complaining that she's got a degree in marketing or something, but she can't get hired for any job that's not paying $200,000 a year. And I'm like, mm. all right, you know what, maybe part of this, and I don't know if this factors in, but I wonder if part of it is unrealistic expectations that we've given to some people that, you know, sometimes you just have to do a job and you can work towards that dream passion <laughs> project, as opposed to starting with that passion project and having it for your entire life. I don't know about that. I think that there's a larger conversation that's happening going towards some of the new members of the workforce about what it, what their contributions at work need to be. And some of that's coming from the fact that we do have an aging out of the population and a really, really, really low unemployment rate. But I've seen younger workers who have quit for reasons that some of the older workers generally don't quit for. So the, the people who have been more experienced, for example, they'll quit if they get a average performance rating two months into the job. They'll quit if they are asked to work on a Saturday at a recruitment fair because the company feels that they're better represented and they're getting time off in lieu. And of course, you've got people who are quitting because they're not allowed to work from home. So the message is definitely being felt by employers that employees of certain populations feel more entitled and more empowered to demand things at work. And unfortunately, they're willing to quit even without a replacement job in place if their demands are not met. Yeah, we got to run, but I, you know, it, it does make me wonder about people. We, we have lots of jobs in our society that we still need people to do and that, you know, might be described in some cases as grunt work or, you know, mm. and, and, and I, I don't know, maybe I, I have great regard for those people who do that and, and, you know, continue to, as I say, old generation may be thinking, but continue to go to work and do it. And it may not be everything they ever dreamed of, but you know what? There is uh, honesty in doing, or there's, there's something in doing an honest day's work and being paid for it, even if it's not everything I once dreamed of. 
I love that. But the other part that we're hearing the narrative from the younger generation is we've seen our parents do that grunt work. And when their time came, the companies dumped them without any loyalty Ah. back. So why should I commit to a company that's not willing to commit to me? Interesting. It's an interesting it long really debate. Is. It really Yeah, we have way more time. I wish we had a lot more time because it is. It's a fascinating long debate. Uh, maybe another time. Uh, Dr. Nita Chinzer, Associate Professor with the Leadership and Organizational Management at University of Guelph. Thanks for this. Great chat. Thank you. Bye-bye. Very interesting story. Uh, Hamilton found itself in, for the last couple of weeks, the Sarah Jama story and what happened with the NDP caucus and how this is all shaking down. I want to bring in John Best, who is publisher of the Bay Observer to join us. John, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. Thank you. Uh, so you, uh, on the Bay Observer, you did a little digging and you found something out that was very interesting about uh, the, the NDP caucus. Uh, some people were at Queens Park when the vote was taking to censure her. Uh, some were not. I'll let you tell the story. What, what did you find out about the local connections with the Sarah Jama story? Well, I, I was looking into the, uh, I was going through the list of, I had the list of who voted uh, which way. I got it from Hansard. And I noticed that the uh, member for um, uh, Hamilton West, Ancaster Dundas, Sandy Shaw, who's in the NDP caucus, didn't vote. Um, and I was, but later I talked to some people and I was told that, that she was extremely upset, has been since this incident blew up and uh, of course the Hamilton West part of of her writing as uh, you know has a, a large Jewish population there's two synagogues located in that uh, riding and one located just outside of it so um, it sounds like uh, she was under quite a bit of pressure at, at the local level and uh, she did not vote and then i went through the list again and and noted that not only did she not vote but uh that uh, there were s- seven others that didn't vote and and what caught my eye was uh, peter tabbins who was the interim leader of the party until styles was elected leader and kind of the you know the uh, eminence grease, if you will, uh, you know, the adult in the room in that caucus, he didn't, uh, he didn't vote. And, and what the vote was, Scott, was um, to oppose her uh, censure by um, the government by the and, and which would mean she wouldn't be able to speak in the in the legislature. And so Stiles was hoping that, you know, having kicked her out of the, the caucus, uh, Styles did not want her to be silenced and, and was hoping that her caucus would line up and, and they, they could put a unified front in opposing the government motion to um, censure uh, JAMA. But it didn't work out. Seven of her members either, and let's be kind, somebody may have been sick. Uh, there's no way of knowing that. But they didn't vote, period. Also, the, the entire eight-member seven or eight member liberal caucus, for some reason, none of them voted. So it, it, I think what it shows certainly in the NDP side of things that, you know, there's, uh, there's some real division in there on, on this issue. And of course, it's all triggered by the uh, Israeli Hamas war. So just a, you know, kind of an interesting political well, sidelight, I thought. It and, really and, is. And I guess showing as well that you know, it's one thing to be made leader of a party with no opposition, 
So it may have seemed like a, you know, a benefit when Styles got the job, but she doesn't know who really supports her and who doesn't uh, either, because there was really no contest for her to become leader. Yeah. And well, what, and what we saw, I mean, we have heard a lot in the past couple of days or few days, I guess, from those who didn't like the idea. We, we've seen, uh, riding associations and things speaking out about Sarah Jama being kicked out of caucus. W- w- clearly the people who oppose the idea are now more speaking out, but we've not heard a ton from whomever. And I don't even know, as you say, some of these votes, someone could have been sick. Someone just could have been away. It's really hard to figure out where everything stands with this right now. Well, and in fairness, 16 conservatives didn't vote. And uh, I suspect that they were just, uh, we don't know where they were, but um, it's possible that not all of them were even in the building. Uh, So there was, you know, I think the vote was 63 to 23, which is 86. So it leaves, you know, uh, almost 40 people uh, who didn't vote. So, you know, obviously the government wasn't, uh, with the majority they have, they don't really have to whip the members that much, uh, on, on votes like this. Uh, but it's interesting, uh, certainly to see, uh, that many NDP just simply not wanting to, um, oppose the censure of Sarah Jama. What do you think this all... Well, let me back up for a second. There have been those who have said now already, we've heard, you know, leadership review or Merritt Stiles has to go or all the rest. Is this one of those stories that time will heal and everyone is going to just move along? Or do you see that this could be one of those stories that Sarah Jama becomes the sort of that thing hanging over you? Her name is always hanging over Merritt Stiles and she never gets rid of this. I think it's too early to to tell. I mean, we're in the middle of this, uh, you know, this terrible war in, in the Middle East. And I think as long as that is raging, I think this story will will have some legs. Uh, what, what happens after that? I'm not sure. The you know, it was the Hamilton Center Writing Association that that condemned uh, leader styles, uh, the, the one in Kitchener Center. Uh, where the member, by the way, has actually resigned to, she's she was an NDP member, but she's quit uh, in order to take a teaching job because she just couldn't hack the political, uh, you know, back and forth from Kitchener. So I, I think I think the situation in Israel is going to drive this story to a certain extent, and uh, we'll just have to uh, wait and see. But. Uh, at the end of the day, so far, I've only heard about two writing associations, and I don't see anything that's going to reverse any of the decisions that have been made either by the leader or by uh, the Ford government. What do you think, and we got to go here in a second, but it, okay, so again, Sandy Shaw didn't vote according to the records, but we don't know why exactly. Is this one of those things that she is going to at some point have to explain, or is, again, is this one of those things that it's okay just to say, Hey, I wasn't there and just leave it hanging? Well, I don't think she'll necessarily have to explain it to you and I, uh, but she may, um, she may well explain it to people uh, that she considers to be important within the writing. <laughs> um, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, that she was not opposed to the censure and that's the reason she didn't want to vote, um, uh, with, uh, you know, she didn't want to take part in this NDP, uh, olive branch, I guess you might call it, where they were trying to show that they could be even handed on the, you know, we expelled her. Yes. Cause she wasn't a team player, but when it comes to silencing somebody, that's, uh, 
not where we're at. And unfortunately, there was a good chunk of uh, the caucus that just didn't want to be bothered with that. That is John Best. He is publisher of the Bay Observer. Appreciate the time today, John. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The carbon tax was one of those ones, has been one of those ones that is particularly uh, upsetting to some people. There are those who are fully on board and say, look, we got to pay the carbon tax because we have to clean up the environment and this is the price we pay. And there are others who are saying, yeah, it's just a political thing. It's scoring political points. Well, the latter position seems to have gained some traction in the past few days when the liberal government announced that, you know, we got to save the planet, but we also have to put off the carbon tax, at least for certain people in heating, home heating for the next three years, which would take us ironically in, you know, whatever past the next election. I'm not going to be that cynical. Maybe I will. Anyway, there are people who now say, wait a second, if we're, if, if the carbon tax is not essential, if we can get rid of it now, because it's going to cost a lot of money, that does two things. One, it says that the liberals were wrong when they said the carbon tax wasn't going to cost people anything because clearly it is, otherwise they wouldn't do this. And two, if this is not about saving the planet immediately, this is a political thing. It, it, it suddenly has become a mess. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Joins me now. Jay, how are you? Doing well. Great to be with you. Uh, great to be with you. This is, um, this seems like if you look, even if you fully are on board and believe in the idea of a carbon tax and there are people who do, and that's fine. This seems to be suggesting that the government doesn't quite believe it as strongly as you do, because it seems to be making this a political thing. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, for years, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the government have told us that families will be better off with the carbon tax. We've heard that time and time again. The nonpartisan parliamentary budget officer actually said, no, families aren't better off. The average family in Ontario this year is losing $500 even after the rebates. But you're exactly right. The messaging was this is better for the environment, even though some of that data is not actually there, but that it's going to leave everybody better off economically. That was their core case. And so by admitting that the carbon tax was hurting people just trying to heat their homes and stay warm for the winter, the Liberal government admitted that the carbon tax is punishing working families. It's making it more expensive to heat your home, to get to work, to do some of the essential things that people need to do. But I would also add the exemption was limited to yes. home heating oil. Home heating oil is actually worse for the environment than natural gas. They're taking the tax off of home heating oil, but leaving it on natural gas. And you might ask why? Well, in Atlantic Canada, Nearly half of households there use home heating oil. Liberal poll numbers have dropped tremendously, and they rely on Atlantic Canada to do well to offset losses out west. But in Western Canada, as well as in Ontario, the vast majority of households use natural gas. So here in Ontario, we're, we're heating our homes with cleaner energy than in Atlantic Canada, yet they're getting the carbon tax taken off their home heating bill Ours is staying on. This just shows you it's purely political, but we need our MPs here in Ontario, particularly the Liberal ones, to stand up and say, if they're getting a break, why are Ontario taxpayers not getting a break? 
Well, th- we're getting that in Saskatchewan. Uh, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe today, essentially, not essentially, has said if they don't get the same tax break on their different versions, varieties of methods of heating a home, he is going to stop collecting federal carbon tax as of January 1st. In other words, we're kind of not even going to play your game if you're going to play games. And I can't believe there aren't going to be other premiers who don't follow suit. Oh, other premiers absolutely will. I'll tell you that, um, you know, even the government of Ontario has been very vocal in saying we need to apply this to natural gas. We have to move it uh, to others. And again, the liberal argument all along is that families were going to be better off. We know that the average family here in Ontario, if you have natural gas at home, you're facing a $300 plus carbon tax bill this winter. That's just the carbon tax, not the other taxes, not the cost of the natural gas. And, you know, heating your home is not something that's optional here in Ontario. Heating your home is not something that's optional anywhere in Canada. It's it's an essential. And so, you know, the Liberals can try to pretend that, well, maybe somehow you can install, you know, five or six different heat pumps in your home, which you'd have to put out a whole lot of money to do, hasn't proven to be fully reliable throughout the winter. Um, but look, a vast majority of households here in Ontario use natural gas. It's cleaner than home heating oil. The government should actually want households to move from home heating oil to natural gas to benefit the environment. But I do think, look, the Saskatchewan Premier has been very clear and they have crown uh, agencies out in Saskatchewan that actually collect the money in a, in a way that we don't see here in Ontario. The government actually collects the carbon tax there. So he can do that. There's going to be probably a showdown between governments, but I don't think that the federal government is really going to have the spine to say, we're giving a special deal to Atlantic Canada and take on premiers like Scott Moe, particularly if, as you said, other premiers join them. I would also add that look at Alberta, the government there, the UCP government, but also the official opposition, NDP, led by Rachel Notley, the former premier. Both parties are saying this has to be fully given to every Canadian household that heats their home, not just those with home heating oil. So you've got an NDP former premier in Alberta siding with Scott Moe and others who are calling for this Canada-wide approach to home heating that I think, absolutely, if we push hard enough, Trudeau's going to have to cave. Well, you know what though? I mean, there is going, there is a year and a half or more before the election. And if this has been, if we're suggesting or seeing that this has been a political thing now, why not a political thing closer to the polls when, you know, this can be dropped then? I, I, I I suspect that in time, everybody will end up with this, but you know, you can make some political hay with this and do it in dribs and drabs when you need to drop something nice and give a little gift as it were, to the people. No? Well, that may be, but I think a lot of Canadians and taxpayers in general will see what's going on in Atlantic Canada and say, hold on a second here. You know, their home heating is actually polluting more than mine. They're using home heating oil. They're not being taxed on it. They're getting special treatment. And here we are, we've got half of households saying they're $200 away from not being able to pay their bills. And Ontario households on average are going to have a $300 plus carbon tax on their natural gas to heat their homes this winter. And that's going to increase every year between now and 2030. So you mentioned the next election is a couple of years away. 
Well, the carbon tax is scheduled to go up again in April, again the following April, and every April until 2030. So it's only going to go up closer to the election. I think Prime Minister Trudeau has made a decision here. He's made a decision that there is a crack in his carbon tax policy. If he's willing to give this free pass to Atlantic Canada, but not to the rest of the country, I think that's going to sow a lot of internal division. And I think that's going to drive down his poll numbers in other regions, including Ontario. And, you know, there's also folks in Atlantic Canada who realize, look, the carbon tax is still going to apply at the gas pump. It's still going to apply when food producers on farms, when farmers have to use fuel to produce food. It's still going to apply when my food is being taken from the farm to the store. So Atlantic Canada is not rid of the carbon tax. This is one concession the Trudeau yes. government has made. It's yeah. not It's not we exempting see. the region entirely from the carbon tax. And I think it's just going to sow further internal division. And I think folks here are going to be you know, upset with this special deal. And I think you'll see premiers, hopefully Premier Ford, stand up and side with Scott Moe on this. And we may see, I think you're right, we may see some people moving to the NDP then if they're saying I'm an environmentalist and I'm no longer being served the way I expected or the government isn't taking it as seriously as I thought. I, I don't know how this is an overall winner uh, for the federal government, but we will see. Um, Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for this. Thank you. If you are someone who likes going to Tim Hortons Field and likes seeing championships and like having a winning team in front of you, you have not really had to wait because in the meantime, along comes Forge FC, five years, four championships now, including Saturday at home. First time ever for a team in the Canadian Premier League to win at home. Uh, The guy who has led this team to all of these, Bobby Smirniotis, the head coach of Forge FC. Coach, congratulations. Thank you, Scott. Love that song. I, I guess you don't get too sick of it, huh? No, you can't. It's, uh, it's always a fantastic feeling living uh, those types of moments with your team. This one, and you've had, I mean, you've had close games. Many, most soccer football games are close, but going into extra time at home and then falling behind and then the way you did it, uh, are you a guy who's got a good, strong heart or are you on the sidelines living and dying a little bit with this? Yeah, everyone always asks me that question, and uh, you always have those anxious feelings before the games, but uh, in the games, you just get uh, laser-focused, and uh, our guys did a great job. You know, it would have been easy there an extra time. You've gone down uh, to kind of let it go, and uh, we just hit another gear, and that's what our team is all about. All right, explain this to me then, because we see this with coaches all the time, like elite, high-level coaches. We see this all the time where something really bad happens, you guys falling behind, and again, in soccer, even a goal matters a lot, and the coaches somehow managed to keep that poker face. How do you do that? So you got to think of your next move. No different than uh, any battle or, or history. You know, it's uh, something can happen uh, until the final whistle goes. Nothing is done. Um, so you got to be prepared for everything. Make moves very quick. And uh, sometimes you can do all the right things as a coach as well. But your team just takes over in the quality of your players and the uh, quality of uh, two of our players took over on Saturday night. Okay, Bobby. So tell me this then as a coach, is it easier to keep that poker face when something bad happens to not betray that you're feeling it? Or is it easier to keep the poker face when something good happens and you're not trying to over-celebrate? You know what? A lot of people have told me I keep my poker face in both, uh, both <laughs> situations. Uh, which is I, harder? I, I love to celebrate at the end. Which one is harder? Yeah. Uh, I think it's uh, to keep it when something doesn't go uh, very okay. well. Okay. 
That hasn't happened very often though. So you've, you, you haven't had to work on that too much. Five years, I say four championships though. I got to ask you this, you, you have won four titles out of those five years, but not every year do you finish at the top of the league. Why are you guys so effective in the playoffs? You're not always winning the, the shield every year, but in the playoffs you come to life. Why? Yeah, well, you know, we've, we've finished the top twice in the, in the regular standings. Um, but we also know where the trophies lie uh, and the trophies and the championship in this league falls uh, by what you do in the end and these final games. And we've got an excellent group who's, who knows when they really need to put their foot down. Uh, and when the matches matter the most, I think we just put it into another year. Uh, and that's given us an opportunity uh, to do this. We've been excellent throughout the, the season, but when it matters most, uh, the guys, the staff, everyone, it's just their laser focus and really, you know, wanting to lift that cup. This may be a ridiculous question because it's now been many years that this has happened, but does there come a point, I mean, you already were the target of every other team when you've won the first one and then you win the second one, you're a target and then you get to the final and third, but don't win. And then you win last year, you've got to be a target, but does there come a point when you start to say, I mean, how long can we hold on to this? Because everybody is dying to beat Forge. Yeah, I said it from the beginning, back in 2019, you know, we want to be a big club. We want to think big uh, as an organization. And, uh, you know, when you're a big club, uh, the target's with you. If you look across uh, global football, if you're Real Madrid or Manchester City, everyone wants to uh, take you down. And I think that makes you sharper, that makes you better, and that also keeps you, you know, wanting to strive for more, and it keeps that uh, championship mentality in the team. You think that You think it is motivating? Oh, 100%. What about, the, and we got only a minute or so left here, but what about as far as getting players? Is it, I, I assume it is a lot easier to get players to come to your team when you've had the success you've had. Yeah, I think players want to be part of championship teams, uh, but what we talk about, it's a, it's a difficult thing to play for Forge. Uh, you know, the pressure is high. Uh, you know, the standard is high here and the expectation amongst the, our organization, amongst our fans, amongst everyone is... Uh, you know, that we need to win. And that's why when Forge wins a game, you know, everyone uh, in the football media and soccer media says, yeah, that's a normal thing. And when things uh, aren't going so well, it's uh, sometimes the end of the world. Uh, but as a big club, that's the pressure you want. And that's the pressure you want on players uh, to be motivated to do these types of things. Well, uh, 2019 Forge FC champions, 2020 Forge FC champions, 2021, uh, not champions, only silver medalists in, in 2021. What a, what an enormous drop, uh, 2022 champions, 2023 champion. That's pretty good, Bobby. That's, uh, that, that's pretty good. Congratulations on all that. Thank you very much. Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900 CHML.com.